And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3? If you're new with us, we welcome you. And uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And last week in our study, we came to the second half of chapter 3, where we focused our attention on John the Baptist. And as we said last week, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a more colorful guy uh, in the Bible than John the Baptist, more interesting guy. Um, I'm fascinated with uh, the simplicity with which John lived his life. I mean, he lived out in the wilderness, sleeping under the stars. He ate a very simple diet of locusts and wild honey, and um, not a very... uh, kind of a life you would think would make a person that happy, okay? Living out in the world, I mean, camping out is fun, but not forever. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, there's a limit. And, uh, but, but John lived out in the, uh, outside and uh, ate a very simple diet, and, and yet his life was satisfied, fulfilled, and even joyful. You say, well, how can you say that? How can a guy live like that and be joyful, fulfilled? Because John said it in verse 29. We'll look at that in a moment. And so we decided to look for a a couple weeks at, well, what was it about John's life that made him so fulfilled, so joyful? I mean, what can we learn? Because, you know, Americans, we've got everything. Americans are still depressed and unhappy for the most part. I mean, what was it about John's life that we can glean from maybe and, and, and learn some of the lessons that we can apply into our life about living a joyful and fulfilled life? Well, let me review from last week. But um, first of all, we said, well, John had purpose in life. He had purpose in life. And studies have shown that people that live with purpose uh, live a longer and more fulfilled life. Sometimes that purpose is a young mom taking care of her young children. Uh, Sometimes it's a person taking care of a a spouse or a parent or someone else that depends on them as a caregiver. Some people have hobbies that that keep them going or causes that they've attached themselves to that kind of gives them purpose and meaning in their lives. Uh, I think a vast, for the vast majority of Americans, their job is what gets them up in the morning and gives them that sense of purpose. So much so that when they retire or are forced out of their position, many can't handle the stress, the sense of loss, I should say, and um, feeling like their purpose for living has been taken from them. Of course, that does lead then to alcoholism, drug abuse, and in some cases even suicide. Uh, let me say this. I think a person whose job is who they are is going to have a much tougher time retiring than a person whose job is what they do as opposed to who they are. Uh, I don't think God ever intended our jobs to be who we are. Uh, I think he intended our job to be what we do, to provide our needs and take care of our families. But uh, if you're not living for a purpose higher than that, there's a problem there. God has put eternity in our hearts and given us a sense deep within our hearts that there's more to life than just living to make money to buy stuff. Okay, I mean, not that it's wrong to work hard and make money and have nice things. But keep it in focus. Keep it in perspective. That is not to be the focus of your life. And uh, I just think that, you know, that we need to have a purpose that transcends the mundane, all right? And as we talked last week, when we talk about the necessity of a person's life having meaning and purpose, understand it all begins with you knowing and believing 
that God created you on purpose for a purpose. In other words, you're no accident. I don't care what the evolutionists are telling you. I don't care what society says. God made you, and he made you on purpose for a purpose. The way Paul explained it in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship. The Greek could be translated masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. We're unique, one of a kind. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, those things that God prepared long ago that we should walk in them. God has got a purpose for our life. Now, this was especially true with John the Baptist. As we said, centuries before John was born, God spoke through prophets to tell his people he was going to send a forerunner. 700 years before John was born, Isaiah said it. 400 years before John was born, Malachi said it. God said, I'm going to send a forerunner, a herald, one who would go before the Messiah announcing his coming to, to prepare people's hearts for the coming of Messiah. And then even before John was conceived, God sent the angel Gabriel to a very godly priest named Zacharias, who had been married to his wife Elizabeth for many years. They were elderly by this time, and uh, she was barren. And God told Gabriel to tell them that God had heard their prayers. He was going to give them a son. They were going to call his name John. And he was going to go before and turn the hearts of the people back to God. He was going to go forward in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was going to have a dynamic ministry. And so when John was finally born all through his life as he's growing up now, his mom and dad no doubt reinforced to him. At every turn, John, God has got a purpose for your life. Would to God more Christian parents would do that with their children from the time they were little. Now, John's parents knew what his purpose was. We don't for our kids, but we have to know God's got a purpose for them. And they need to draw close to him and grow in their love and knowledge of him because the day's going to come when he is going to say, the time is now, and he's going to draw them into this ministry. John was a unique person. And so the first point in our outline is that John had purpose in life. I mean, he knew uh, he was a man sent from God to announce to Israel the coming of their Messiah. And that greatly contributed to his sense of fulfillment and joy that he experienced in life. As we said last time, guys, you will never know greater joy in life. Listen to me. You will never know greater joy in life than in fulfilling the purpose for which God created you. Yeah, but I don't know what that is. You pray. You just keep drawing close to the Lord. He'll show you. All right? He'll show you. So John had purpose in life, number one. Number two, John maintained the proper perspective in life. First of all, we're still reviewing from last week. First of all, he rested in God's sovereignty. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless... It has been given to him from heaven. Now, of course, that goes back to verses 22 to 25, where now Jesus comes on the scene with his disciples, and they're baptizing down in Judea near Jerusalem. And John, to give the Lord some space, because John did not want to encroach on the Lord's ministry, he moved up to the area of Shechem in Samaria, 
where John the Baptist was still conducting baptisms and all. And, but, but the crowds were dwindling. And Jesus' crowds were growing. And so John's disciples are a little put out by this. And said, John, you know, the one that you bore witness of, he's the Messiah. Well, everybody's going to him now. Okay? I mean, what do you think? What do you feel about that? And John says, look, a man can receive nothing except it has been given to him from heaven. Guys, it's always sad when a spirit of competition arises between those who are serving the Lord. That happens when you begin to think it's your ministry. It's your ministry and not the Lord's ministry. If you realize your ministry is really the Lord's ministry and it's all about him, then whoever does ministry and it's being blessed, you can say, praise God. Paul said, whether, I, you know, whether uh, in reproaches or in commendations, as long as Jesus is being, I mean, people come against me, they put me down, they call me a, a liar and whatever, I, as long as Christ is being preached, okay, I, that's all I care about. They can attack me, but if they're preaching Christ, I don't care what they think about me, all right? But John, John rested in the fact that his whole life was under the sovereign control of God. That's what the statement where he said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven, from, from God. That's a statement of sovereignty. You know, we said last week that often we say things, probably not out loud, but maybe in our heart. We say to ourselves, you know, my career, my money, my ministry, uh, my marriage, my kids, my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my life. I know what's best for my life. I can make my own decisions. I don't need to pray. I, I know what's best for my life. First of all, you don't know what's best for your life. And neither do I. And secondly, no, those things don't belong to you. Because nobody has anything but what it's given to them from God. And if God gave you a career and money and a family and good health, you thank and praise Him every day and you don't go on just saying, well, I'm going to do what I want to do now. No, God's given you those things for a reason. Seek Him to know what His will is for your life. We, we don't, you know. And John rightly understood that. He understood that his ministry was a gift from God for a certain period of time until Messiah came. And now that Christ had come, he was happy to fade into the background and let Jesus take center stage. Guys, in this John is a true example of humility. And I can't tell you how important humility is to every area of your life. Because it's, it's God exalts the humble, he brings down the proud. Every fruit of the Holy Spirit, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all grows in the soil of humility in your heart. Pride will choke out everything God wants to do. John was a true example of humility. He didn't try to hang on to his ministry or to his celebrity. And he didn't become bitter when the crowd started to go over to Jesus. He knew his ministry had been given to him from above. And now that it was finished, in other words, fulfilled, well, he accepted that. He rested in God's sovereign will. Look, the sovereignty of God means that he is all-powerful, and in total control of everything and everyone, and can do whatever he chooses to do. God doesn't have to call a board meeting to find out if he can do something, okay? God doesn't run for office every few years, which he's got to placate people. He is a sovereign. Jesus is sovereign Lord, right? 
Do you know that in the Greek he's called despotes, which means Lord? Where are we going to word desperate from? There are bad despots and there are good despots. A despot is a benevolent dictator, uh, a good one. Jesus is a benevolent dictator in the sense he's in complete control. Now we think of dictators in bad terms. Okay, I understand that. It just means there's somebody who has total control. Aren't you glad a benevolent dictator has total, is going to have total control someday when he comes back and establishes his kingdom? But God is sovereign. And that means, guys, that nothing can happen in my life or your life except what God allows for his purposes. The classic verse, Romans 8.28 uh, you know, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. And guys, look, if you trust the character of God, that he's a good and loving God, that he has your best interests at heart, that he is strong enough to lead you in the right paths all the time, you're going to rest in his sovereignty. You're going to rest in the fact that he knows what's best for your life, and he's going to lead you in the right paths. It doesn't always appear that way at times. You have to rest in that, though. The whole goal of the Christian life is learning how to let go of the steering wheel once and for all and let Jesus take over. And as we said last week, and he doesn't want you sitting next to him as a co-pilot. Get in the trunk. Lock yourself in there. Let him just take over, okay? Oh, I'll let Jesus drive, but I'm sitting right next to him. And I, you know, sometimes i gotta, I got to help the Lord. No, no, you have to help the Lord. He knows where he's going, okay? You just got to trust where he's going is the right place for you. And it is. But we get controlling, don't we? We get nervous. We, we want to just, we trust him for a while, and then oh, something comes up, and I've got to kind of get in there and work it out. You know, I think of uh, Abraham, and I think about the sovereignty of God. Abraham, of course, was a very godly, deeply spiritual man. And at one point, him and his nephew Lot were living in the same area, and they had many flocks and herds, many shepherds and so on, and so many livestock, uh, the land couldn't uh, support all of these animals. So the herdsmen began to fight with each other. So Abraham comes to Lot and says, look, we're family. This isn't right. Lot, you go ahead and you pick whatever land you want, and whatever you pick is yours. I'll go somewhere else. Now, Lot should have said, Uncle Abe. You're the older. You're the elder. You pick first, and I will take what's left. But no, Lot was kind of selfish, and so he said, oh, great. Looked around. Oh, I like that, I like that land around Sodom. Well, that's good grazing land. I'll take that. Well, you know what? We can't walk by our own sight because often we will walk off a cliff, basically. It looks good to us, but God knows and so Lot took that land, and after 20 years, he wound himself, found himself living in Sodom. It destroyed his family. You remember the story. Abraham trusted God. I'm not going to fight with my brother here. I'm just going to, you take what you want. I'm going to take whatever's left. And he just kept following God. And you know what? God kept blessing Abraham. God is sovereign. And when we realize that and rest in that, that goes a long way to giving us peace, comfort, uh, and even fulfillment in life. So number one, John maintained uh, under uh, how John maintained a proper perspective in life. He rested in God's sovereignty. Number two, he remembered his humanity. 
Verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Guys, the second ingredient to joyful and fulfilling, a joyful and fulfilling life is remembering that you're not the Christ. And neither am I. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, it, it is. And yet, how often we take the role of the Christ upon ourselves, we do it more often than we realize or would care to admit. You say, well, how is that? Well, if you take it upon yourself to handle and control your own life, in effect, you're saying, I'm the Christ. I'm the master. I'm the Lord, uh, the sovereign Lord of my life. I'm in total control. And that's the main reason why so many Christians are going through crisis after crisis and are full of anxiety and stress. It's because they're trying to run their lives in their own strength and according to their own wisdom. Uh, two verses that I just have made a couple of my life verses, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Unfortunately, many Christians don't trust the Lord with all their hearts. They don't seek the mind of God on important issues or do the things he has told them to do in his word, unless it's, of course, something they want to do. And because of it, they've got the weight of their marriage on their shoulders and their job and um, their kids, their finances, their future. It's all weighing down on them because they're not resting in God. They're not trusting in God. They've got to do it. They've got very controlling. And guys, that's a recipe for a nervous breakdown, not fullness of joy. You have to understand, and I know you know it, but we have to remind ourselves, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Lord and Master of my life. And if you take that role upon yourself, you're basically saying, well, I am. I can handle it. Um, I'm in charge. I can do it. That's pride. And the Bible says pride goes before a fall. And oftentimes people fall. Even Christians can have nervous breakdowns. I have seen many. Not because the peace of God wasn't there if they wanted it, but because they refused to rest in God and they had to get in there and control everything. Look, it takes humility to admit that you can't run your own life. You need to turn control of your life over to Jesus. That takes humility. John, well, he was a humble man. I think it's pretty obvious by the two statements he makes about himself and his Lord. First of all, verse 28, as we just said, I'm not the Christ. We could paraphrase that. John is saying, look, I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not the Lord. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm pointing you to him, but I'm, I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. And then in verse 30, he says, I must increase, he must decrease. Guys, because of John's humility and willing to, willingness to rest in God's sovereignty, I guess that to me is some of the biggest reasons why John had peace, had joy and fulfillment in his life. And so under the second main point we've looked at or are looking at, John maintained the proper perspective in life. Number one, he rested in God's sovereignty. Number two, he remembered his humanity. Number three, he recognized his ministry. Verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom 
excuse me, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Now, the friend of the bridegroom was someone in Jewish culture that parallels the best man in our culture with a few differences. In the Jewish wedding customs of that day, the friend of the bridegroom arranged many of the details of the wedding. And, this is important, brought the bride to the groom prior to the marriage ceremony. John saw himself not as the bridegroom, not as the focus, but as the friend of the bridegroom, which means a servant. And because John recognized what God called him to do, it really helped to keep him from making his ministry about himself. But rather he found his joy in simply bringing people to Jesus. I have seen many men in ministry over the years that started out good. They started out with a good heart. All they wanted to do was, you know, was, was exalt Jesus. But then they started to experience success in their ministries. And with it, popularity. And after a while, slowly you began to see it was less and less about Jesus and more and more about them. And all of a sudden, they were the star of every story. The hero of every story, right? Uh, all of a sudden, you know, it was all about them and their ministry and what they did for the Lord and so on. And as, as they lifted themselves up with pride, as again, the Bible says pride goes before a fall. Well, most of those same men have fallen and have been removed from ministry. Guys, we must recognize our ministry, whatever your ministry is. We have to recognize that our ministry isn't to draw attention to ourselves or to make ourselves the focus in any way. It's to remain in the background and to keep pointing people to Jesus. Remember in a previous study we talked about John? And we said that John, among other, th three, uh, among other things, was a finger pointing. Remember? He was a voice crying, a lamp burning, a finger pointing. You can access that study uh, to chapter 1. But one of the things John was was a finger pointing. When Jesus started his ministry, uh, when he came to be baptized, officially started his ministry, um, the crowds were there, and what did John do? He pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was content to just be a finger pointing. I mean, that really is the joy of ministry. It's all about Jesus, or it should be, which means it's all about pointing people to him. I mean... I'm not the wonderful counselor, okay? I'm not the one that can fix your problems. And I'm, just, I'm just telling you what the Word says, Jesus, and I'm directing you to Him. You can bypass the middleman at any time and just go right to Jesus, all right? You don't need me. I appreciate the fact that you allow me to be here in some capacity, but, you know, it's, it's, it's all about Him, right? And let me say this. If you commit your life to doing this, keep pointing people to Jesus, refuse to be the focus, you'll discover a fantastic truth. You'll have fullness of joy. But I'll warn you, this isn't going to be easy. For God to work this out in our lives, he must place his people in all sorts of places and situations so that he can have a witness who will bring the bride 
to the bridegroom. I mean, if we were always prosperous and healthy as believers, we would never be able to relate to the world around us, a world that is full of hurting and broken people, and the bridegroom would be without a friend, without a witness. And so God allows pain in the lives of his people. Suffering happens. Tragedy overwhelms us. We suffer loss like everybody else, of our families, friends, finances, and even our own health. And God allows these things to enter into his children's lives so that when the world sees you going through the same things they're going through. I mean, can you imagine talking to somebody about Jesus when they're going through suffering and they know you've never... I mean, I'm not the best person to minister to everybody because some people have gone through some very difficult times. They've lost a loved one, and although um, they listen patiently when I try to minister to them, sometimes they say, well, Pastor, thank you, but you don't really know what I'm going through. You've never lost a child. You've never had the doctor say you've got a terminal disease. I understand that. I understand that. And that's why God allows us. He doesn't protect us from all the adversities and heartaches and, and problems of life. He allows us to drink from those bitter wells because he is sending us out into the world to be a witness. And the world will not relate to us if we've never known any suffering or sorrow or heartache or pain, etc. And when you go through these things and they see you going through these things, and you have peace and even joy, they're drawn to you. They want to know what it is that you've got. And I'll tell you what, guys, you become a powerful friend of the bridegroom. But please don't miss this. And please don't think I'm crazy for what I'm about to say. If you recognize the purpose for which God created you, again, to be a witness for Christ, to bring people to Christ, then you will listen. Embrace sickness, you'll embrace suffering, you'll embrace various trials, because you know it's God's way of building in you the things he needs to build within you to use you as a friend of the bridegroom, somebody that he can use to bring people to his son. I, I know that there are people when they hear me say these things, they think that you're, you're crazy. Pastor, what is wrong with you? I'm supposed to embrace suffering? I'm supposed to embrace loss, heartache? What does that mean? How can you even say that? Let me say this to you. If you are a spirit-filled Christian here this morning, you know what I'm talking about. And you'll know you're a spirit-filled Christian if you know what I'm talking about. Because unbelievers and new believers, this is a concept they can't get their mind around. But if you're a mature Christian, you've walked with the Lord long enough, you're filled with the Spirit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And no doubt, whatever adversities you've experienced in your life, God has used it. God has used it. We had a gal in the church um, for a few years, and uh, she was spent a lot of time in the hospital. Her health wasn't the best. But every time she went in the hospital, God put a bunch of people around her, and they got saved. She was always witnessing, okay? So every time she started to get kind of sick or something, we'd say, well, let's, God's got more, more work for you to do, you know? We didn't take it lightly. We prayed for and so on. But we just saw it as God was using it. She embraced it. And God used it. 
you know, Paul the Apostle suffered with something. We don't know what it was. Some thorn in the flesh, he said, a messenger of Satan that buffeted him constantly. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, I, I prayed three times that the Lord would take it away. And the Lord says, no, Paul. My strength, my, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Again, some people have a real hard time with this concept that God can be glorified through sickness and, and tribulations and so on. Let me just read you a few passages. You don't have to turn. You can write them down. John 11, verses 3 and 4. Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus got sick one day. And so the girls dispatched the messenger to the Lord, verse 3. And the uh, messenger said to the Lord through the girls, uh, uh, on behalf of the girls, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it be tested by fire, be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered uh, for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, that suffering is part of the Christian life. If we're following Jesus and he suffered, what makes us think we are not going to suffer or we should be exempt from suffering? Peter said, no, arm yourself with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Give you one more. Paul the Apostle said in Acts 20, starting with verse 22, he said, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was a spirit-filled, obviously a spirit-filled man. And he understood that trials and adversities and even physical illness, these things were designed by God to draw us near to the Lord and to mold us into the role, listen, of being a friend of the bridegroom, a witness for Jesus Christ. But guys, here's where the analogy takes an incredible turn. As New Testament Christians, we're not only friends of the bridegroom, those bringing people to Christ, we are actually the bride of Christ as well. Everybody in this room, somebody, God used somebody to bring you to Christ. That person was a friend of the bridegroom, okay? And they introduced you to Christ. You got saved. Now, you're a friend of the bridegroom. You're out there witnessing to people and sharing your faith, right? Someday, all of us, though, are going to become the bride of Christ. We're engaged now. We're betrothed to him. But someday, we're going to stand with him and actually be married to the Lord. I tell you, the greatest thing you can do with your life, guys, right now, is to offer it up to God and become a friend of the bridegroom. Saved and sharing Jesus with people. And then someday, the bride of Christ for all eternity. Now, how did John accomplish this in his, whole, whole, uh, his uh, life? I mean, he was focused, wasn't he? John, was, he never wavered. 
Um, how was it that he remained so faithful in fulfilling the purpose for which God called him? Well, I think a big part of it was he remained committed to God's priority. Now, under the heading of how John maintained the proper perspective in life, which led him to a joyful and fulfilled life, we have seen, first of all, he rested in God's sovereignty. Number two, he remembered his humanity. Number three, he recognized his ministry. And fourth and finally, he remained committed to God's priority. And what is the God the Father's priority? Very simply, it is the Son. Capital S-O-N. It's always been the Son. The exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, love and appreciation for Jesus, these have always been the Father's priority for his creation. Human beings. John says it here in verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Paul expanded on that when he said in Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Guys, this simply is the heart of the Father. And in our lives it looks like this, that we be totally committed, sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean... This is the problem with too many Christians. They've added Jesus to their life, but he's not their life. Again, he's like the frosting on the cake, adds a little sweetness. He's like the salt in the soup, adds a little flavor, but he's not the substance. If Jesus isn't the substance, if he's not all in all, well, you're never going to experience the kind of joy, fulfillment, blessing, fruitfulness that the Father intends for your life. As long as Jesus is not the focus, as long as he's not your consuming passion, he's not, but I want him to be. Pray. Then pray. Because how can the Father deny a prayer like that? Father, I don't love Jesus enough. I I don't have a passion in my heart for for him. He's not my first love, but I want him to be. How can the Father say, oh, sorry, I don't like that prayer? He will give to you that heart for Jesus. Jesus. You'll become consumed with a love for Jesus. And everywhere you go, you want to be a witness for Christ. You want to introduce people to your Lord. Don't miss what John connected his joy and fulfillment to. Again, we've just talked about it. At the end of verse 29, into the beginning of verse 30, Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John connects his joy and fulfillment in his life to how much Jesus was lifted up and how much he was diminished. I I really think that is it. The degree to which you exalt Jesus and the degree to which you decrease will be the degree to which you have everything the Father wants to give you. The problem is we're so busy pushing ourselves up and pushing Jesus down. I mean, you know, we're the focus. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's bringing the blessings to me, okay? I mean, he's the servant. I'm the Lord. And and that's how a lot of people think, basically. But he is the sovereign Lord. He is the one who is supreme. 
One pastor put it well when he said, and I quote, Like John, we must get out of the way and talk to people about Jesus, focus our attention on him, and live for the purpose of sharing him. In other words, we must decrease. If I don't pull in a big salary, so be it. If I don't play for the 49ers, so be it. This pastor's a pretty big guy. He could play for the 49ers. If I don't have a nice house, I don't care. I must decrease so that I can be about the business of sharing him. Jesus said, if you die to self, you will find true life. Therefore, the more we spend on our hobbies and pursuits and pleasures, the more miserable we're going to be. But the more we say, I must decrease and he must increase, the more clearly we'll hear his voice and the greater our joy will be, end quote. Guys, remember that we talked about the must statements in John chapter 3. Many consider John chapter 3 one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. So if the greatest chapter in the Bible is talking about three must statements, I think we should listen, right? We've looked at these, all right? Three must statements uh, that this chapter is built around. First of all is the must of the sinner. Verse 7, you must be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus. When you get to heaven, you must be born again. Second is the must of the Savior. Verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Yes, on the cross. If any of us were going to be saved, Jesus had to die. And now the third great must statement emerges. The must of the servant. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now guys, why is that important? And that should be obvious, but... Why should we live our lives in service to Jesus? Why should we live in such a way that we follow all he has said? Well, John answers that question in the remainder of this chapter. So let's just look at it as we bring this to a close. Verse 31, John said, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John is saying that he is an earthly man. John says, I'm not from above. I'm a citizen of earth. And as such, I can only speak about earthly things. Where John says, Jesus is from above. He's not just a teacher sent from God. He is God in human form. One who was in perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity. I mean, he's not just a teacher sent from God. He is God. Nobody can ascend to God, he said earlier to Nicodemus. The Son of Man has come down from heaven. Nobody can ascend to heaven. The Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as such, he came down to tell us what was on the Father's heart, what it meant for us to be saved, how we got saved, and the glorious future in his kingdom forever that's awaiting for us now that we are saved. Jesus is the alone is uniquely qualified to speak on behalf of the Father. Verse 32, And what he has said and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Well, no, it's not that no one did. It's just that, for the most part, Israel rejected their Messiah. That's the sad uh, statement with regard to the world in general, but Israel in particular. How that God had promised to them Messiah was coming, told them a forerunner would come before the Messiah, even in Daniel 9, predicted the very day he would, prophesy, or he would present himself as the, as the Messiah. You can read Daniel 9. And yet when he came, well, it says in chapter 1 of John's gospel, uh, 
He was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own, the Jews. Uh, he came to his own, but his own received him not. The Jewish people rejected him. Jesus said to Nicodemus, who he called the greatest teacher in Israel at that time, in verse 11, he said in chapter 3, verse 11, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Who's he talking about? Jesus said, we. You know, we speak what we know. We testify what we know. What Some people say, well, he's talking about himself and his disciples since he shared with them the gospel. Well, that's possible. Many think he's talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know the truth. I am the truth. I've come down to teach you God's truth in a world full of darkness and lies and the devil is in control and he's trying to keep people away from eternal life by giving you false hope and putting your faith in all kinds of uh, things. And, and, and you know what? Jesus came into a world of darkness. The darkness couldn't extinguish it. The darkness couldn't deal with it. Satan didn't want Christ in this world. He tried to keep Messiah from coming. Well, obviously God is much more powerful than the devil. And so Jesus came. And he came for a witness. To teach us what God wanted us to know. Verse 33, he, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God does not give the Spirit by measure. In other words, God has not put His Spirit on the Son in a limited capacity. God has placed on Jesus the fullness of His Spirit. And He is uniquely qualified to teach and to preach all that God wanted Him to teach of the Father. In fact, we're going to see later on in John 14. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. I came to tell you what the Father was like. I, the words that I speak are not mine. They're my Father's. Jesus only spoke what the Father wanted him to speak. He only spoke truth because God cannot lie. He has to speak truth. And of course, this was in contrast to all the other... I'm talking about the good prophets now of Israel. You had certainly many false prophets who came preaching lies, but God sent good prophets... But even then, they only had bits and pieces of God's revelation. When Jesus came, he was the full disclosure of God's revelation. The Word became flesh, who dwelt among us, right? Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John were up there. And then Moses and Elijah appeared, right? Now, Moses and Elijah were the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Of course, Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. So we have the law and the prophets. The Old Testament is summed up in, in that phrase, the Law and the Prophets. So here's Moses and Elijah, right? And what did the Father say from heaven? As they're standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved Son, pointing to Jesus. Hear Him. What He has to say now supersedes everything. Not that the Old Testament or the New Testament contradicts the Old. It's just that if you want to know the fullness of God, look to Jesus now. He's the one you need to look to and listen to, right? And then he gives this incredible verse, verse 36, which so much of John's gospel is built on in many ways. We'll see this over and over again. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Guys, why should we follow Jesus? Because he alone has the words of eternal life. And when we put our faith in him, we are taken from the cursed family of Adam and placed into the blessed family of God. In Adam all die. That's why you need two births. Once in Adam, physical birth. Second birth in Christ, be born again. And when you do, you change families. The wrath of God, hell, is no longer abiding on you. Now the blessings of God, heaven, eternal life, and so on. All right, well, we're done, but just getting back to our original question, how could a guy like John, who lived in the wilderness, with none of the comforts that most of us think are essential for a life of fulfillment and joy, how could he ever attain such a life? Three things. Because he kept his life simple and unencumbered with the cares of this life. That's a concept we Americans don't really understand. People in third world countries, they understand it. Okay? John kept his life simple and unencumbered by worldly cares. Number two, he made introducing people to Jesus his life's work because that was the purpose for which God created him, just like you and me. And number three, he lived his life by one simple maxim. He must increase, but I must decrease. If we apply those three things into our lives, I guarantee you, you're going to know joy and fulfillment. You're going to rest and God's going to be striving and worried and anxious and on the verge of a nervous breakdown and popping pills and taking shots and whatever else people do to calm down. You'll have joy. You'll have peace. And you'll have purpose. And that's what makes life worth living. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for lifting up a man like John so foreign to the kind of life we think is necessary to have happiness, fulfillment, joy, and so on. John's a great example to us, Lord. Give us grace to understand his simple life. To, to strive, not that we have to live in the wilderness, I'm just saying, Lord, though, that simplicity, not always striving for more stuff, it goes a long way in helping us have peace. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your love. We, we want nothing more than to be a friend of the bridegroom, just pointing people to you, Lord. And someday we'll become the bride of the bridegroom. We look forward to that day. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.